Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel delivered a report to the United Nations detailing the systemic sexual violence committed by the Hamas terror group during and after the October 7th attack on Israel. The horrific report follows a bipartisan resolution adopted by the U.S. House of Representatives last week condemning the use of rape and sexual violence. Here to discuss that resolution is AJC's Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs, Julie Fishman-Raymond. Julie, welcome. Thank you so much, Manya. So anything bipartisan on Capitol Hill is rare and worth discussing. Can you walk our listeners through the details of the resolution and explain why there was such unity around it? Absolutely. So the resolution was introduced in January, and it really came out of a a concerted effort on the part of mostly female members of Congress who were hearing about what had gone on on October 7th and what was continuing to go on in Israel as it related to gender-based violence and sexual assault. And they read the tea leaves of thinning silence on behalf of the global community and said, if people aren't believing Israeli women, we are going to show that Congress, the American Congress, is united in believing Israeli women. So there are two resolutions in the House and in the Senate. The resolution in the House passed, and they're pretty straightforward, expressing this sense both of outrage and outlining some next steps. So in addition to condemning rape and all forms of sexual violence as a weapon of war by Hamas, calling on nations to criminalize rape and sexual assault and hold perpetrators accountable, including by armed groups, which is somewhat of a different take on this, calling on international bodies to really condemn these atrocities in a way that we have seen too many of them pause or hesitate or simply remain silent, reaffirming the U.S. government's support for an independent, impartial investigation. This is very important into what happened on October 7th and afterwards, and reaffirming the commitment to supporting survivors, which is, I think, so critical in this moment. It's one of those things you could say, oh, of course we support the survivors. But recognizing the reality of what's going on in Israel today and how this trauma continues to unplay for those victims is really critical, right? In this moment, Israel is not focused on supporting the survivors of rape and sexual assault, not because it's not important, but because they're still fighting a war and focusing on, you know, rebuilding and what to do with the hundreds of thousands of people who have displaced, been displaced from their homes to elsewhere. So in the hierarchy of need, addressing all sorts of trauma, it has to be sort of lower on the totem pole and hopefully will be addressed. But that's a piece of what the international community can do and what Congress is trying to do, just express that support and solidarity. Calling on international bodies to condemn sexual violence, international bodies such as the UN, correct? Yes. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about the report that the Association of Rape Crisis Centers released this week? 
It's a really important report, not least of which because in some ways it's the first sort of fully fleshed out, credible report about the atrocities of the 7th. And in a lot of ways, it's important also because it pushes us to be uncomfortable, right? I think a lot of why this issue has been sidelined or or pushed aside is not just because Israel continues to be fighting a war and there are myriad other issues, the release of the hostages, et cetera, that are really like there's all of these competing needs, both in our minds as people who are sympathetic to these causes, but also in the world and in terms of advocacy. But it really pushes a lot of these deeply uncomfortable themes to the forefront. So, for example, there's a whole section in this report about the sadistic practices of Hamas, binding and tying, mutilation or destruction of genitalia, insertion of weapons into intimate areas, destruction and mutilation of the body. It's grotesque. It is hard to read about. It's hard to say. But in some ways, I think that's sort of our responsibility, right? Like we who have not thank God, lived through this trauma can be the voices for those who who have and may not feel comfortable coming forward to tell their stories, may not have the emotional capacity or stamina to tell their story and relive the horrific trauma that they suffered. So every time I sort of talk about this issue, I try to make whoever, whoever I'm speaking to, especially women, say the really uncomfortable things, right? That we're taught as young children not to say in polite society, right? Like talk about vaginas, talk about rape, talk about, you know, fondling of breasts and and mutilation and all of these things, because if we're not comfortable saying it out loud, we're not going to be comfortable doing that advocacy that's so important. Has sexual violence been used or, or highlighted as a weapon of war elsewhere, Julie, that we know of? It's enough of an instrument of war that it's been deemed a war crime. I think that this, you know, like so many things that took place on October 7th, it was used to such a degree that the global community at some point will have to reckon with how we treat or how we consider sexual assault as an instrument of war. But certainly in lots of other places, this is the sad reality And I would say the sad reality of sort of the treatment of women, but of course we know from October 7th that it it wasn't just women. You know, it was women, children, accounts of men being sexually abused, even men who are still hostage in the tunnels in Gaza. There are reports of of sexual abuse against them. So we sort of think about it in terms of gender-based and focused specifically and solely on females, but the sad reality is that's also not the case. And For men especially, I I think the stigma can be that much more heightened. So knowing that it could take years or even decades for us to fully understand the full gravity of the situation of what happened on October 7th against women, when it comes to, to men and other victims, we may never understand the full scope of what happened and what continues to happen. What is the progress of the resolution in the Senate? It's moving. It's been introduced. It has about a quarter of the Senate as co-sponsors, which is significant. There's a need for swift movement, I would say, and greater advocacy. So for listeners, they can go to ajc.org and find our action alert, calling on senators to to co-sponsor and support this really important resolution when it's up for a vote. 
this is one where, again, like our advocacy is critical and sometimes we shy away. But it's much easier to send an email to your senators than it is to actually have to talk about these really awful issues. So for anyone who is looking for a 30-second way to sort of comfortably take action on this important issue, the action alert is a really good and meaningful way to do so. Can you kind of walk us through the advocacy efforts that push this through the House of Representatives, but also are pushing it through the Senate? In other words, are there victims participating in this, families of victims? What kinds of stories And again, this could be a very uncomfortable portion of our conversation. What kinds of stories are being shared with people to convince them to put their name on this resolution? A lot of the stories are coming from the family members and loved ones of of current hostages. So there's an amazing piece of advocacy going on in the halls of Congress nearly every week that that touches on this, but isn't entirely about the sexual assault, but it's about those families coming, whether they're Americans or Israelis or some other nationality, and they have family members who are still hostage, they are coming week after week, day after day, to speak to members of Congress to keep that issue at the forefront. And of course, for a lot of them, The hostage issue is part and parcel, integrally connected to the issue of gender-based violence. So, for example, there's a woman who has been to D.C. several times already and who is coming back next week to talk specifically about gender-based violence. Her name is Yorden Gonen, and she is an amazing advocate for her sister, her sister Romy, who is young. She's in her 20s. She was at the Nova Festival And she had this horrific experience of being shot, calling her mother, saying, I've been shot, I've been bleeding. And while she was on the phone, her mother relays that they heard screaming, screaming in Arabic, screaming in in Hebrew. And then the sounds got louder and louder. The voices got louder. And then Romy shut the phone and was taken into Gaza and is still held hostage. She's one of the the few women still held hostage. And so her sister tirelessly comes to tell her story with this sort of recognition, this sad recognition that probably all of our worst fears, you know, hopefully not, God forbid, but our worst fears about sexual assault are possibly happening to her sister with frequency or regularity. And she's one example. You know, there's another woman who comes also to advocate in Washington, but elsewhere as well, who actually works on this issue. She works in in rape centers and working on sexual assault in Israel for many years. So she comes to talk about, you know, her cousins and her family members who experienced a, a raid on a kibbutz, but specifically through this lens and says, like, I know the type of trauma that women experience. I know why they don't speak out, why it can take years, even not in wartime, right? And this impossible situation that Israeli women are now being faced with, right? Where they have to, before they're ready, before they have the emotional capacity, tell their stories because the world is not believing them. Because there there needs to be this public cry, believe Israeli women, me too, unless you're a Jew, all of this you know, horrific silencing that now they're forced into telling these stories. And 
the long-standing trauma that will certainly continue, not just because of what the experience, not because of the sexual assault and the rape, but then also because of the repeated trauma of sharing that with others. Of course, this advocacy is also happening in other countries as well. AJC Berlin director Remco Limhus told us about Shawnee Look, another supernova festival goer who was actually filmed by terrorists, and that film was released. She was experiencing horrible treatment. Unfortunately, she did not survive her captivity, but certainly her story lives on in Germany, and her family has spoken out about some of the crimes committed against her. And there's certainly evidence of that as well. Julie, who were the champions of this resolution on Capitol Hill? Who really supported it, lobbied for it? And I'm talking about U.S. House of Representatives, but also you know, which senators are indeed putting their name on it. So in the House, it was really the brainchild of Kathy Manning, Lois Frankel, Mario Diaz-Balart, and Jen Kiggins. And some of those names will probably be familiar to listeners. Kathy Manning is one of the co-chairs of the Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism. Lois Frankel, another very outspoken Jewish female representative who leads a lot of the sort of women's groups and women's caucuses on Capitol Hill. In the Senate, it's an all-female cast, which I think is beautiful. You know, in both the House and the Senate, you have two Democrats and two Republicans. But in the Senate, it's all women. Jean Shaheen, Kirsten Gillibrand, Deb Fisher, and Britt from Alabama. They've really emerged as champions on this issue, especially, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand is the senator from New York. She's going to the floor nearly every week to tell the stories of hostage families um, about what happened in Israel on the 7th, the sexual assault, et cetera. And she's not alone. There are true champions that have been kind of tapped into because of this unspeakable trauma. And their voices, I'm sure, will outlive this war, certainly. The hostage crisis, I say, hopefully, and with a lot of prayers, that kind of advocacy continues. Of course, there are others, right? Everyone, I'm sure, by this point has seen the images of Senator John Fetterman's office, where he has every single hostage poster sort of wallpapered in his office, and his staff are tracking who's released, who's still being held, who do we know is already deceased. They're tracking it as closely as the hostages and missing family forum is in Tel Aviv. Like, they're so on top of it. They're great friends in Congress, in the administration, around the world. What you said about the work of our Berlin office is absolutely true. These issues are being raised by AJC at the EU, in Brussels, in Paris, at the Vatican, really throughout the country and throughout the world. The only abstention in Congress was Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a woman. Has she explained why she saw a problem supporting such a resolution, but also why she didn't outright object to it? Her response was really a case of classic whataboutism. You know, like, how can you speak about the Israeli victims while not speaking about Palestinian victims? And that's something that we've heard increasingly on social media. Oh, they're Palestinian victims as well of sexual abuse. It's a really twisted distortion of reality. While horrible things happen in wartime, there's no comparison to Hamas's systematic 
targeted, brutal, sadistic, planned assault on Israeli women and anything that could be happening elsewhere. Hamas has really sort of set the benchmark, and I say that with some irony, for what sexual assault as a a weapon of war can look like. So I'm not surprised by Congresswoman Tlaib's vote. Um, it, It tracks with other votes that she's taken and other statements that she's making. And I think for her, it's very personal. You know, she has Palestinian roots. She has Palestinian family members. So I imagine for her, all of this is very, very personal, very sensitive. And she probably comes to this issue with a great degree of defensiveness as well. That said, the sheer fact that she was standing alone as the only voice not affirming this condemnation says a great deal. Did she explain why she didn't outright object to it? I don't believe that she did. What else is AJC trying to accomplish in Washington right now? What more is needed? Certainly we need the Senate to pass this resolution. There's this continued fight over foreign aid for Israel. How do we get um, Israel the support that it needs in terms of material, ammunitions, et cetera? And a lot of that is tied up in a political battle over, do we fund Israel alone? Do we fund Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan and other allies who are sort of collectively fighting against forces of authoritarianism or or anti-democratic forces? And then, of course, then there's additional layers. Do we also then find efforts to secure our border in different ways? And the more you sort of add into this pot of money, the more additional avenues or recipients, the more opportunities there are for poison pills. So AJC is working really hard to try to continue the fight for for Israel to get the support they need, for Ukraine to get the support that they need as they continue to fight Russian aggression. It's an upward battle and so, so, so political. But those are the key advocacy items. And of course, we continue, as I said before, to support a number of family members and loved ones of hostages as they come week after week to tell their stories on Capitol Hill. Next week, actually, we have a delegation specifically to talk about gender-based violence. And it's going to include the sister of one of the hostages, who I mentioned before, a part of the Zaka search and rescue team, who went and saw bodies as they were being prepared for burial and witnessed the clear and really atrocious evidence of sexual assault. A reservist for the IDF, who he was off duty, but the minute that he heard the news about the Nova Festival and what had happened there, he went to help and to try to rescue people and saw bodies that had clearly undergone sexual assault, naked bodies, a male body with cut genitalia, talking about how it's not just women who are victims here, a woman's body with her breast cut off, a young woman with massive bleeding in and around her genitalia, and then also a survivor of the Nova Festival who saved himself by hiding in bushes, but heard repeatedly over and over again the sounds of rapes happening. So we're bringing these people to Washington to tell their stories to members of Congress, to diplomats, to State Department officials and other members of the administration to continue the moment. We're really lucky that most of the audiences that we'll be reaching do believe, right? Like they've already reached that first hurdle of believing Israeli women, but now need to be urged continuously 
to take those stories on as their own, to continue that advocacy and to make sure that those stories don't stand on their own, but they have echoes throughout throughout the halls of Congress, throughout Washington, throughout, you know, the EU, the UN, other multilaterals until this issue really gets the attention that it deserves. Why aren't women being believed? For all conflicts like this, for any other case, massive or individual, where a woman has experienced sexual assault, our first response is supposed to be belief, right? We are supposed to believe, we are supposed to hear. It is the opposite of innocent until proven guilty. You are a victim until or unless it can be proven otherwise. We start with belief. So the fact that that hasn't been the case here, it defies explanation. It defies our understanding and unfortunately really heightens the need for the victims to tell their stories, the witnesses to tell their stories. It is horrific that these people are being put in this place where they have to continue to tell this story because people aren't believing them. I wish I had a better explanation for why they're not being believed. That being said, there are reasons voiced as to why Israeli women aren't being believed. There are reasons given that to some may hold sway. And they're worth acknowledging because that's part of the narrative that is incumbent on all of us to address and rebut. Part of it we hear is because there's not always that clear-cut evidence. This was wartime, the worst attack against Jews since the Holocaust, a truly traumatic moment for Israel. They were not doing the job that maybe in retrospect they should have done in terms of rape kits and documenting all of that evidence. For Zaka, the search and rescue team, they traditionally don't take photos. That's not a part of their mandate. And in some ways they feel it's a, a violation. You know, it's not a part of the holy work that they are doing in terms of collecting body parts and trying to keep victims, victims of terror of the seventh and far proceeding, trying to keep those victims as whole as possible. So there is this sort of dearth of evidence, but there is plenty of credible accounts. So I say that, but it doesn't explain why people aren't being believed. There's no explanation for that. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for joining us. And for those listeners out there who would like to do more and push the Senate to adopt that resolution, you can go to ajc.org slash Believe Israelis. Julie, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Manya, I can't thank you enough and people at the pot enough for shining some light on this really horrific story that needs to be at the forefront of all of our attention. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can follow People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with friends and family and write a review on Apple Podcasts.